spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. From the ringing of sleigh bells to the ringing in of a new year, it is episode 245 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, so it's not really the new year yet. Or maybe it is when you're listening to this anyway, but we're going to get our first show of 2019 technically because it is the end of December, right? So we're going to get the first show of 2019 started off on the right foot with Bruce Wayne himself. That's right, David Mazouz is going to join us to talk about the final season of Gotham on Fox, which is going to be premiering, I mean, pretty much before you know it, right? Probably days away as of you listening to this anyway. So we're going to talk to him about the final season and how he's felt up to this point and some of his favorite moments from the show over the past five seasons. Yeah, we'll get to all that, but you know we're going to start out by talking about what we're reading. And that's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Doba from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Maybe you got a brand new laptop or a tablet, fire that thing up. Or, you know, you can always pull out your long box because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading and, you know, slim pickings for new comic book day on December the 26th. I mean, I guess, you know, for good reason, right? So why not... Start out with Marvel Action Avengers number one from IDW and, of course, Marvel Comics, the partnership that they've had recently. It was written by Matthew K. Manning, John Samariva on the art, Photobunker on the colors, and Krista Meisner on the letters. A ton of other great variant covers and stuff, too, by the way. Like the first nine pages of this digital book, anyway, was just the amazing covers that they had for this. But basically... If you remember my review of Marvel Action Spider-Man, number one, this is done for a little bit of a younger audience, so you have to keep that in mind as you go through here. And this does kind of center around Tony Stark. Now, there's something going on. Maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler, so I will give you a little bit of a warning here if you haven't read it yet. This does center around AIM, and they have a plan of action against... It's almost like it is it is against the Avengers, and one member of the Avengers in particular does kind of center around Tony Stark, and something that AIM very much wants to have in their possession. So everything kind of happens very, very fast in this first issue. And we get to, we get to, we do get to see plenty of familiar names from the Avengers. You get to see Captain America in there. We've got Black Panther, who's involved as well. You've also got, you see Thor for a hot minute, and there's some funny interactions with him there, and some others as well. You get to see Black Widow, of course. And basically, what they're—it's their call to action. Once what happens to Tony Stark happens to Tony Stark, and that's pretty much all I'm willing to give away for you at this point. But you know, you get to see Tony being Tony, and of course, you know that Tony doesn't hide the fact that he's Iron Man, and he's you know with Pepper, and that again, that's all I'm really going to give you. And something kind of goes down as a result of that, and what happens from there. It's kind of interesting and a little bit confusing at the same time. You kind of think you know what's going on, but you're not really quite exactly sure what's going on. And they try and tell you at the end and give you a little bit of a cliffhanger there. But again, I thought it was a little bit confusing, even for younger readers. I mean, it is kind of obvious, I guess. Maybe 
it makes me sound stupid to say that it's not obvious. I don't really think it is, especially if you're targeting this to young readers. You want to make it a little bit more obvious than you did what's happening there at the end. That's all I'm saying, because there's stuff leading up to that that's a little bit confusing, and it sort of leaves you wondering, okay, is this what I'm seeing and who I'm seeing? And that confusion even kind of brings itself into the dialogue from some of the Avengers in the book. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting way to go. As far as the art's concerned, there's nothing really wrong with the art. The art's fine, but it's hard for me because Fico Ostia is so amazing, and he's the artist for, of course, Marvel Action Spider-Man. Maybe it's not fair for me to judge the art in another book based on that because Fico's so amazing. And that's not to say that Summer Eva and company aren't amazing, but, I mean, when you see Fico and some of these amazing covers, this art was a little bit of a step down from that, that's all I'll say. But for for younger readers, definitely, the the art does work. But the story, to me, again, was just so fast. I'm not sure what the, the big picture is here. Whereas I feel like in Spider-Man, and again, I hate to compare the two books, but you stack them up side by side. And to me, Spider-Man was the far more superior book in these two series. I didn't dislike this Avengers book. I just think that it it really happened a little bit quickly, which I guess for a short attention span of younger readers isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I don't really feel like, I mean, I feel like we got somewhere, but we didn't. I guess is my biggest problem with this book. So for now, I will say... This is a pickup. I'm not really ready to give up on this book just yet. I think there's more to it. I know that this book was fully returnable, if I remember correctly. I would not return this book. That much I can tell you. I would definitely hang on for a couple of more issues to see where this thing goes and where this thing picks up. So, as far as Marvel action Avengers number one is concerned, not as good as Spider-Man, but definitely good enough to pick up and give a shot. This next book something that's actually not out until this coming week, the first week of January, and that's from Dark Horse Comics. It's Halo Lone Wolf, number one, and Ann Toole does the script. Kieran McEwen doing the pencils, J.L. Straw on the inks, Dan Jackson on the colors, and Simon Bolin on the letters with Christian Ward doing the cover. Now, this follows a female Spartan, Linda058, who was sent to end a threat by a wanted scientist, on a distant planet. Now, you find out as you read this book that the story's not quite that simple. There's something else that is a part of this as well. And this basically, we're we're at the point where the war with the Covenant is over. And Linda has to venture into Covenant territory, even though the war is over, to find the scientist and deal with this other thing that she has to deal with as well. But the there's a clear assignment of what needs to be done here. Now, when she does reach this planet, it's just her, by the way, her and an AI. That much I can tell you. that This is a solo mission for a reason. That reason's not really given to us. I'm not saying it's not given to her, but it's not given to us, the readers yet. So even if I wanted to hint to you on that, I can't. But they're definitely, you, you, as you're reading this book, you definitely feel like something's not quite right. Like something, something's not being told, not just to us, but to her as well. So there's a little added mystery there. Now, what I will say is that once we do get there and we find out what's going on, there is, we, we do see some covenant that get involved in this. And there is a bit of a cat and mouse game, so to speak. And we do see plenty of action once we get there. 
especially towards the end of the book. Now, what we get to find out and what gets to unravel here is that, again, all might not be as it seems, and things aren't necessarily the way that she thought they would be when she got there. Or maybe they were. Here's the thing, though. The interesting aspect of this book is, does it matter to her? And we're going to find that out, not in this issue, but in the next issue. That's one thing that we don't really find out. The cliffhanger in this issue is the, I guess you could call it a trope of the soldier following orders sort of thing, right? We get to see that a lot in a lot of stories, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not even saying that's not a good plot device. What I'm saying is is that, yeah, we do see it a lot, and now the key is going to be in this next issue is what makes this different from every other time that I've seen this or other times that I have seen this. And is the fact that this is Halo and you're betting that Halo fans are going to stick around regardless going to be enough to keep fans interested in this book? The art is fine. Nothing wrong with the art at all. It's not spectacular, but it's but it's not bad either. It's definitely very, very middle-of-the-road art. The The action sequences are definitely very good. The, the dialogue isn't amazing. But again, it's good enough. It's something that you would almost expect from a cut scene in a Halo game or something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But here's the deal. If you're not a diehard Halo fan, are you going to stick around for what comes next? I think the second issue here, very, very key. That's why I am going to give this a pickup. But I won't give it two more issues. I'll give it one. I want to see what happens in this next issue to find out exactly whether or not I would want to continue reading this book. Let's see if you feel the same way. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to dive into the seven seas and visit Aquaman, my spoiler field review, and a two-part geek tamer. We've got something else for you that's coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jessica Lucas from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Believe it or not, something I've been waiting for since watching Super Friends when I was younger. That's right, an Aquaman movie is finally here. Something I never thought we would get because when I was younger... I always loved Aquaman, got made fun of for it because of, well, you know, the obvious reasons, you've heard the jokes, I don't need to repeat them, but for some reason, I always loved Aquaman. Maybe it's because I wanted to be a marine biologist when I grew up. Didn't quite happen. I'm okay with that. So, when I knew there was going to be an Aquaman movie, I was super excited for it. Going to give you my spoiler-filled review now of Aquaman. I know it's been out since, since what, December the 21st? I don't care. I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. We were running best of during Christmas, and I want to talk about it now. So, I'm not going to sit here and bore you with all the plot details. You've probably seen the movie at this point. You just want to know what I thought of it, right? So, here's the long and the short of it. And I'll get into this in more detail in a second. But you know what it was? It was fun. From start to finish. Was it this cinematic masterpiece? Visually, I think it was. I think it was one of the most visually stunning superhero movies I've seen, period. You want to debate me on that? Fine. I'm okay with that. But the things that James Wan did with Atlantis, and even even above Atlantis on in the surface world, let's just call it the surface world at this point, everything was just so visually stunning. From the costumes to the set pieces to the animals themselves, just absolutely stunning. Everything about it was captivating from a visual standpoint, as far as I'm concerned anyway. And it was shot well. Let's just face it. There were so many great moments that were shot in that movie. And I'm not even just talking about the action sequences. So James Wan did a next level 
amazing job. Before I even get into this movie itself, this was the death of the DC film universe as we know it. I'm sorry. I know that I've talked about this before at great length, and there's people that will say, well, you can't just, you know, act like what we've seen never happened. And this movie doesn't. We have a Steppenwolf reference in this movie. More spoilers to come, by the way, in case you didn't get the warning earlier. So we know that this takes place after Justice League. If you didn't already know that, now you know where this timeline is. So what's going to happen is, is the Justice League has happened, and it'll be dealt with, I'm sure, at some point down the line. But this, to me, felt like a self-contained, in its own tank, yes, I went there, Aquaman story, and there were no apologies about that. You could see Jason Momoa's origin story as Aquaman, as the king of Atlantis. That's what we're doing here. It's, it's a very loose adaptation of Throne of Atlantis, kind of. And that's, I mean, this certainly draws from plenty of Aquaman stories, or I would say a few, but that's what we're getting here. It's kind of a loose adaptation of the Throne of Atlantis. Jason Momoa gives us an Aquaman that I don't even think we've really seen before. I mean, he's a badass. He's, he's sarcastic. He's a little bit of a moron. And that's okay. It's basically Jason Momoa playing a Jason Momoa type character as Aquaman. It's Jason Momoa getting to have fun, let loose, and be his own hero. And I love that. I love how strong Amber Heard was, was Mira. And Mira got to save the day plenty of times. And the chemistry that they developed over time in the movie, I thought was really, really good. Could have made it obvious at the beginning. They really didn't. She hated his guts. She hated the surface world. She had to grow to love it. Yeah, there were some goofy moments, like when she was eating the flowers and stuff like that. That was a little bit goofy, but it was fun. Again, that's the personification of what this movie was. It was fun. What relationship I think you really felt in this movie was Atlanta and Tom Curry. Nicole Kidman and Timiru Morrison. Just amazing. In the sh- even in the short time that they were on the screen together, you felt that relationship. And when she had to leave, you felt that. And that was one of the amazing things that drew me in from the beginning of the movie that had nothing to do with Aquaman himself. I mean, yeah, that's her kid. Okay, and you never want to see a mother have to leave their child. But I got to tell you, that moment just between the two of them was amazing. And the relationship between Arthur and his dad, I thought was really, really great too. And it's, and it's a lot of fun. It makes Arthur likable on so many levels when you're watching this movie that it was that's that's one of the reasons that it made it so captivating and fun for me is that James Wan throughout this movie and Jason Momoa and his performance draws you in to root for the title hero. And that's one of the most important things that you have to do in a superhero movie is you have to make people want to root for the title hero. And that's what this movie does. And it also gives you multiple villains without having to feel like anything's crammed in. Of course, you know, the King Orm, played by Patrick Wilson, trying to create all this stuff saying, hey, we need to invade the surface world, and I'm going to unite the clans, unite the kingdoms together, and we're going to go conquer the surface world, because if we don't, they're going to come get us eventually. Well, it turns out that he has a cohort on the surface world in the form of Black Manta. 
played by Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, who also did a fantastic job. Now, the origin story for Black Manta, a little bit different than you remember in the comics. It still involves his dad being killed, but there's a little bit of a twist on it. And I didn't mind that at all. I actually think that the guilt that Arthur feels for what he decided to do, letting his father die later on, I think was a big part in him growing as a character and as a king and being the hero that he needed to be and realizing that he created Black Manta and that whole trope of do superheroes create these supervillains as well was addressed head on there. And I thought that that was really, really, really great. And the motivation for Black Manta as well was certainly there and getting to see him construct his own suit and how he gets the weapons basically from Orm. He gets this technology that's Atlantean. You know, he gets his ass kicked the first time that he tries to face off against Aquaman. Second time, not so much with the Atlantean technology. So again, the evolution of that villain. And the only problem I really had with this movie, honestly, was that he gets dispatched a little bit too easily. I loved the Black Manta fight. I thought that he put up a really good fight against Aquaman, actually. But the way he gets dispatched, I mean, I would have loved to see more Black Manta, but if you're looking ahead at sequels, then you're gonna, you know he's going to be dealt with in the second one. You know he's going to be coming back. But I want to talk about King Orm for a second. I want to talk about, about Patrick Wilson. And I think that I'm going to do a parallel from Star Wars here, the new Star Wars trilogy, because and, and maybe fans are going to kill me for that because, you know, how dare I compare Star Wars to Aquaman? But follow me on this. Because one of the biggest arguments against Kylo Ren, right, was the whole petulant child thing, the whole hissy fit thing, the whole, you know, it's just the maturity level of that character alone just doesn't scream villain to you, right? It doesn't, I mean, it screams villain, but at the same time, it's hard to take him seriously when he's being a child and throwing hissy fits and wanting attention and thinking that nobody takes him seriously. Well, there's a lot of King Orm and Kylo Ren parallels. They're almost the same character that have similar motivations. The difference is King Orm not only, present, pull, pre, not only presents himself from a position of strength, but he doesn't have hissy fits. He just deals with it. Like when he finds out the Volko is, has betrayed him and has been training Arthur this entire time to kind of take over the throne. He could have thrown a hissy fit. He could have thrown shit around the room. He didn't. He dealt with the problem. He didn't even kill Volko. He locks him up. Maybe that was a mistake. I don't know. It turned out to be a mistake in the end, didn't it? But he dealt with it. He didn't. He dealt with it like an adult would deal with it. But he still has that moment of, you know, you're the reason my mother's dead when he's fighting Arthur. And the throne is mine. And how dare you, this street rat, come in and try and take it from me. It's the air of superiority over the air of a hissy fit of a spoiled teenager. And that's the difference here. And that's what Aquaman did better than Star Wars did with Kylo Ren. And why I actually think that King Orm felt like more of a legit villain than Kylo Ren ever has in Star Wars. Is that you're giving me the same kind of character with similar motivations, but you're making it different. You're making what he's doing matter and everything is strategic. 
And while Kylo Ren tries to do the same kind of things that Kim, Kim that King Orm does in Aquaman, he eventually gives in to his emotions, and that's something that Orm doesn't really do. I mean, he does in the fight in the fights a couple of times, and it does cost him. But at the same time, you feel like there's more of a maturity level there, and I think that that was done very very well. And and then there's that scene where he sees his mo- that his mother is still alive. And that's a very powerful scene as well, where you kind of see him not necessarily break down, but you know that it's not over between the two of them. And, and you actually get a glimmer of hope that maybe there's some good that can come out of this from King Orm. But I just thought that there were a lot of good standout performances. Was any of this Oscar-worthy as far as performances were concerned? No, but you know what this movie had? It had great chemistry, it had a lot of fun, a lot of good action, a lot of moments that kind of caught your attention as far as those action sequences were concerned. You got to see a lot of the, you know, you got to see the the battle seahorses and sharks and these and these giant, just otherworldly beings, especially when he's trying to go get the trident. That was just an amazing scene where he's, and, and when you see him talk to fish, it's not goofy. There's a point to it, and it's not overdone. It's done when it's absolutely necessary. And maybe that's the brilliance of it, is that you're taking something that used to be this goofy kind of thing, and you made it matter in moments that absolutely it needed to be done. It wasn't a gimmick. It was a necessity. And to take something like that and make it a necessity, there, hey, there's some brilliance in that. And I got to say, I respect the hell out of James Wan for it. So if I'm giving this a rating, I'm going to go ahead and give this nine broken tridents out of 10 because there was a lot of broken tridents. And I can't wait to see a lot more Aquaman on the big screen. Bravo to everybody involved. That's going to do it for this week in Geektainment Part 1. Let's do Part 2 and talk about the early premiere of Deadly Class from Sci-Fi, next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Nathan Darrow from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. School's in session for another comic book adaptation from Sci-Fi and Image Comics. This time, it is Deadly Class, of course, from Rick Remender and Wes Craig. Now, I'm not going to do full-on spoilers for this. I know that it's been released online early, but it doesn't premiere on Sci-Fi until January the 16th. So I'm going to be a bit respectful here, not do a ton of spoilers for anyone who might want to wait and watch it on sci-fi. I mean, there's a million different ways you can watch it early. I get it if that's not your thing now. So I, I, I totally understand. But basically this follows a young man named Marcus who's kind of on the run. Everybody thinks he burns down the orphanage that he was sent to after his parents died. You kind of play that out in this first episode, so you get to find out exactly what happened there. You don't really have to wait until after the first episode to do that because they kind of tell you exactly what happens there. And basically, it's a school for assassins. If you want to get down to a brass tacks, if you want an explanation of what this show really is like, it's kind of like X-Men for assassins if you've never read the comic. it's It's very much like that, but there's way, way more to it than that. It's not that simple. But that is the basic, if you wanted to explain it to somebody who's never read Deadly Class, 
that's the best way that you could possibly explain it because you've got different clicks here and there and they tell you plenty about the clicks right off the bat. You get to find out what each one is so you won't feel lost in that regard or anything like that. You get to see kind of a basic origin for every character. You get to find out for, for the main players anyway, like what happens with Marcus. You know exactly where Marcus is coming from. You get a hint of what goes on with Saya. Even Master Lin, who's played by Benedict Wong and who does a great job. They said in the press room that he kind of shows up when necessary and he's kind of like in the shadows a little bit. He certainly shows up more than he does in the comics. I will say that. But yeah, when he shows up, when Master Lin shows up, it absolutely matters a ton. So that is one thing that they established right away in Deadly Class. But you, you get to find out a little bit about the cliques, and Marcus is very on again, off again on this whole concept. As a matter of fact, one thing that was kind of pulled from the comics, and if you're a fan of the comic, you'll appreciate, that's the meeting between Saya and Marcus, where Marcus kind of, I'll say, quote-unquote, decides to come to King's Dominion. And come to the Deadly Class to learn about the Dark Arts. Because, uh, I I mean, let's just say it's not exactly his first choice. And I can understand why it wouldn't be anyone's first choice to necessarily go to school for assassins. But hey, what are you going to do? And it it ends up working out for Marcus. Let's just say that because he really has no place else to go. And that's the rock and a hard place area where you kind of find Marcus. It's like, well... What else are you going to do, right? You go to this school for assassins or you basically end up on the street. It's your choice. So, I mean, and if you're a fan of the comic, if I'm if I'm really just kind of cutting to the point here before I even get into what I thought of the show, if you're a fan of the comic, you're going to see a lot of familiar stuff. And it's been a while since I've read Deadly Class. I did not reread it before watching this pilot. I probably should have. But they get into more than just the first issue in this first episode, but you will see a lot of things that you've seen from the pilot. You will see why you will remember why you loved certain characters from the books. Like if you're a fan of Willie's, then you'll be a fan of him in the show as well. If you are a fan of Maria and Saya, you'll love what they do in the show as well. For some reason though, I on the show, Billy, who's played by Liam James, was just so entertaining for me. He'll either be entertaining for you or annoying for you. One way or the other, I don't think there's any middle ground with Billy. You're either going to love him and think he's entertaining, or you're going to hope that he dies in the first few episodes. And, you know, whether whether or not that happens, again, I won't spoil for you because if you haven't read the comic. So whether he does or he doesn't, that'll be up for you to decide. Once you, Whether you decide you want to read the book or watch the show or both, then, you know, that'll be your decision. But he was one of the characters that I was certainly drawn to. But, yeah, it de- it deals with the first at least couple of issues, if not the first few issues, from what I remember anyway. And there's, I mean, the 80s vibe throughout this. I know that the, the soundtrack was basically the Rick Remender mixtape in this first episode. I wouldn't be surprised if the cassette that they used, one of the cassettes they used, was from Rick Remender's house or from his a box in his attic or something. Because, yeah, this, this definitely felt like a Rick Remender soundtrack. And you do kind of you do kind of get drawn into that 80s vibe, not just from, from the sets and, you know, the certain little Easter eggs that you see here and there 
and the and the fan service to anybody who just loves the 80s and 80s culture there's there's a little bit of stuff there for you but you do kind of get drawn in and it there is very much an emphasis on the Reagan era of these of these 80s and and the politics that were that were going on then and you know depending on what side of the aisle you fall on the politics might upset you or it might not but it might make you want to go back and learn more about what happened during that particular time period and form your own opinion. So I won't get into the politics of it, but let's just say the politics certainly play a role in what's going on and certainly Marcus's motivations. And maybe that makes you sympathize with Marcus and maybe it doesn't. But what you get to do get to find out is that there's a lot of deep emotions involved here and there's a lot of trauma that's involved here as well for these characters. And, and finding where you belong is definitely a part of this story that's not so obvious, I don't think. And Marcus is getting pulled in a lot of different directions here. And let's just say he's very popular with the ladies. That's not necessarily allowed in the deadly class, but yet here we are. And you do get to see some of the classes too, which is very, very interesting, like like classes about about poisons. And you get to see a little bit of the class for the deadly arts. This first episode definitely handholds you if you're not a fan of the comic or if you haven't read it. It will definitely guide you along so you won't feel lost. You don't have to read Deadly Class to know what's going on here. And that and that is something that I think some shows don't do enough of when it comes to adaptations is that you want it to be for the fans, sure. But again, I'm going to say this for every time that I absolutely need to say it. You need to draw fans that haven't read a page of the comic in. And actually, I think that the for somebody who hasn't read the comic, you might enjoy this a little bit more because you're going in fresh. This is an imagery that you've already seen before. And I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to be a fan of the comic because you're going to see scenes that you already loved from the book played out in live action. And that's always a cool thing to see. Like, tell me you didn't want to see that iconic moment in Captain America Civil War where you've got Tony Stark, when you've got Iron Man and Cap fighting, and you've got that image of Cap shield and Iron Man and that big spark, you tell me you didn't want to see that play out on the screen. You absolutely did. So you're going to get to see stuff from Deadly Class that you saw in the book that if you're a fan of the book, you're going to be like, oh yeah, I've been waiting to see that for a long time sort of thing. That will happen. But if you're not a fan of the comic or if you haven't read it yet, you're also going to get these images for the first time. And I think that that kind of makes it a little bit more powerful for you if you haven't gone in there yet. And there are a lot of characters that get introduced here. So if you're not a fan of the comic, that might be one area where you might get in a little bit overwhelmed. Is that There's a lot of characters here. There's a lot going on. But you'll find yourself, I think, gravitating to at least a couple of these characters, not just one, if not a couple of these characters, like I think Willie is, is a very relatable character. Once you get to open up a little bit more of who he is and what his story is, I think that that's a character that Luke Tenney just, just, says, just does such a great job with that I don't know how you can't... I was drawn to him when I was talking to him at San Diego Comic-Con. I don't know how you cannot be intrigued by his character. The same thing with Maria Salazar's character. Or... Or the character of Maria Salazar or Syed. These are characters that will draw you in for different reasons. And there's so many to choose from. So there's no shortage of things to like about Deadly Class. Maybe it's stuck to the comic book a little bit too much. And maybe that shouldn't be a criticism. 
But if you've already read it, <clears throat> again, you're going to kind of see what's coming anyway. But it's the push and pull of how much do you want to adapt, you know, shot for shot, and how much do you want to change for TV. And, and they definitely do change some stuff. It's not an absolute shot for shot of the first three issues. This is not a motion comic by any stretch. There are some changes that are involved. But the balance of how they're going to work that out and how far into the comic that they're going to go is going to be the interesting part of what goes on past this first episode. And you do get to see some climactic moments here, whether you're a fan of the comic or not. I think the show draws you in either way. I certainly enjoyed this first episode of Deadly Class, and I'm very intrigued to see where they go from here on out and how much the pace is going to be accelerated in this first season. I got to tell you, I didn't, I wasn't as captivated with Marcus as I expected to be. And that's no knock on Benjamin Wadsworth's performance. I think he does do a good job. But I found myself more drawn to some of the other characters and not him. That doesn't mean that won't change. And him being the focal point of the show, it's, I, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a knock. And maybe it's just me. Maybe you found yourself drawn to Marcus more than I did for different reasons. And I think that's the beauty of Deadly Class, is that even though the show is centered around Marcus, even if Marcus isn't the character that you gravitate towards, there's plenty of others to choose from. So I'm not even sure that that's a criticism. Maybe that's more of a compliment of how some of the other characters were played out. And it's not that I don't like Marcus's story and don't want to follow it. It's just that I found myself gravitating towards some of these other characters. That's all. So I'm not going to give this a rating again because it's just one episode. And I don't think that it's really fair to give a rating on an entire show in one episode. But I will definitely be tuning in to Deadly Class. And you can do the same on Sci-Fi on January the 16th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That's going to do it for this week in Geektainment. Up next, there is a little bit of nerd news to talk about. So we'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Drew Powell from Gotham on Fox. Listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Pretty soon we'll literally be able to head to a galaxy far, far away. It's time for nerd news. And no, I'm not talking about SpaceX and what Elon Musk has going on. No, I'm actually talking about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It's going to be coming summer of 2019 to Disneyland and fall of 2019 to Disney World. We finally got a little bit of a look at a trailer and what we can expect. And one of the things that we know about for sure is Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run, where basically you're in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. You're flying it. You're making the Smuggler's Run. You can be the gunner. You can be the pilot. It's definitely a family experience where you know everybody jumps in the Falcon or you just jump in there with friends and you get to make the run in the fastest ship in the galaxy. That's kind of what it's billed as. And I mean, it makes sense. In the, in the little bit of video that was released this week, I mean, that, that is basically the gist of it. And as simple as that sounds, how awesome does that sound at the same time? Now, here's the interesting one. And this one was billed as the biggest attraction that they've ever built in Disney parks, which I find hard to believe, but I guess we'll find out soon enough. And that's Rise of the Resistance. Basically, you're a recruit of the Resistance against the First Order. You even come face-to-face with Kylo Ren at some point. The funny thing I, that, I, that I heard in the video was the whole... If you make it back, you're going to be celebrated as a hero, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's exactly the kind of PR that Disney needs is a body count for all the people that didn't make it back from their little rise of the resistance against the First Order. 
maybe there is a point where you know you actually have to complete a mission and if you don't things go differently if it was a choose your own adventure type deal and stuff like that happened how much cooler would that be i'm not saying that's what it's going to be or that's even what it should be but yeah that is what it should be because i think that that would be a lot of fun and very interesting it would also add to the replayability we talk about that with video games all the time imagine being able to step back into this rise of the resistance do something differently the second time and have a different result i think that would be really neat and to get back in line that's kind of what you want people to do in the first place isn't it spend more time in your park i think that that would certainly lend itself to that no we don't get a whole lot more than that we get some other imagery and certainly the whole stepping foot in this world for the first time and actually being able to see it with your own eyes is an amazing feeling. It's like when they brought Harry Potter to life. You know, there's not a whole lot of things that can top something like that. Get to see something that's something you've loved your entire life brought to life in front of you in your very eyes, which you kind of saw already at Disney parks a little bit with Star Wars, a little bit. But this is to that nth degree, right? This is the kind of thing that you wait for. Although, I mean, really, they could have recreated Hoth and handed out parkas at the front door, and we'd be down for it if you're a Star Wars fan, right? So this is certainly the start of something, not the end of something by any stretch of the imagination. And from the little bit of a look that we got, looks like a pretty darn good start. Speaking of big movie franchises, though, here's something that's a little bit of a disappointment. And I normally don't talk about box office numbers, but I think this is important. Of course, you know that Aquaman won the Christmas box office. Won it quite handily. Let's talk about the movie that came in third. That's right third behind Mary Poppins Returns. And that is Bumblebee. Now, cards on the table. I haven't seen Bumblebee yet, so I am not going to comment on what I think of the movie because that's stupid and unfair. So I'm not going to do that because I haven't seen it. What I am going to talk about is the $21.6 million that it made in its first week. Now, we've seen how ratings from critics and Rotten Tomatoes can affect the movie-going publics want to go see a movie. Here's the thing. This has probably been the best-reviewed Transformers movie in a long, long time, at least from the critics anyway. And from fans as well, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think since the first Transformers movie with Shia LaBeouf has a Transformers movie gotten this high of a rating or been this critically acclaimed. Now... Again, I haven't seen it, so I don't know how good or bad it is. I can just go on what people have told me from what I've heard from people that have seen it is that, yes, it is the best one since the first one. Here's the deal, though. That clearly didn't matter in this case. And from what we've seen from the trailers, it actually does look pretty darn good. It actually does look like it's a writing of the ship for the franchise. Again, I haven't seen it yet. I'll find that out when I do. I plan on seeing it very soon. But here's the deal. This really talks a lot about the state of the Transformers film franchise, doesn't it? And how much damage was actually done during the Michael Bay era. For the dollars and cents that they made in the short term in these movies, look at what this has done long term. You've basically done a soft reboot of your movie franchise and nobody went to see it. And that's a problem. So what do you do going forward with Transformers? Do you go forward? Do you really just need to have Optimus Prime as a central figure of every Transformers movie in order for it to be successful? Could you do a movie 
with a character like Windblade as the main character or a main focus of the movie. I think having the female Transformers as the main focus of a movie is not only isn't a bad idea, is not a bad idea. I think it's a great idea. And I think it's something that's long overdue, but here's the problem. It's the Bumblebee problem because Bumblebee is also a very popular character. People love Bumblebee. Nobody went to see this movie. Not as many as they should have anyway. This movie's probably going to lose money domestically. I'm sure worldwide, it makes its budget back and everybody's happy. But domestically, that's the measuring stick, isn't it? You've got to make that budget back domestically. And hopefully, you actually surpass your budget domestically so everything in the worldwide box office is a profit. That's ideally what you want to do. That's what Marvel does very well. That's what it looks like DC is going to be doing with Aquaman. But looking at the state of what's happening with Bumblebee, this is not a good start for Paramount, who's looking to build more good faith in their Transformers movies. Now, it could be one of those instances where it just continually keeps making this $20 million mark, or the word of mouth gets out that, hey, this is way better than we're used to, and this movie actually does recover. But this is not a good sign opening up. And it doesn't seem like that's a growing trend. And when movies are more and more expensive now, it's harder, especially in a crowded box office like we had with Aquaman. And I made a joke about Mary Poppins Returns. It's still a Disney movie. There's plenty of folks that love Mary Poppins that are going to want to go see that movie. I certainly didn't want to make light of that. But when you're a Transformers movie that is that, that expects to compete with the top spot because you've been a moneymaker and you don't even come close, that is a bad, bad sign. And I'm not sure exactly how you recover from that or what you can do to recover from that. And it seems like Paramount has been having that problem with its licensed properties. How do you feel if you're going to launch a G.I. Joe movie at this point? Or how do you feel about that Snake Eyes solo movie that you want to do? Or the Mask movie that you eventually want to do? All these other Hasbro properties that certainly have the ability to make a ton of money and have a ton of fans, but is the bad taste already there? And what do you do to get it out? Because if you made a good movie and nobody's gone to see it, are you really going to think they're going to go see the next one? Maybe they will. Maybe World will eventually get out. But to me, this is a bad sign. And could be, I'm not going to say the end of Transformers movies because I think that's ridiculous. But at the same time, might be very few and far between at this point. Speaking of licensed properties, a little something else that happened kind of under the radar that I wanted to talk about that, if I remember right, was first reported in the LA Times, and that's Mattel losing the vast majority of their toy license for DC Comics to Spin Master, who's going to be taking over a lot of it. Now it looks like Mattel might still oversee the whole DC Superhero Girls initiative and anything that's targeted to girls, but Spin Master will take over most of the action figure line that's targeted to boys. We're also talking about puzzles and games, remote control items like robots, water toys, and stuff like that. This is going to be a three-year deal. It's actually going to be going until the starting at the spring of 2020. Now look, Mattel still has WWE, which is one of the biggest action figure lines that you can have. Mattel's going to be fine. They don't necessarily need DC, but it's, it's the status symbol thing to me. You want the status symbol of saying, okay, we don't have Marvel, but we've got DC. We make the DC Comics toys, and that's a big deal. Because, let's face it, 
Batman's a big moneymaker. Superman's a big moneymaker. Wonder Woman's a big moneymaker. And so on and so forth. Even for boys, Wonder Woman's a big moneymaker. Come on, if we're being honest, Wonder Woman's come a long way. Here's the deal. If you're Mattel, losing this doesn't look good for you. And maybe you think that's okay because you're like, okay. Yes, they have WWE. The Jurassic Park line does very, very well. They're still going to make their money. But yeah, but you don't have a major comic book properties line anymore. And that used to matter for something. Now, granted, it's not like the DC movies have seen a whole lot of success lately. So I understand the whole, well, what are you really losing here? But look at Aquaman. And now Mattel might make some of that money. Because obviously that's not going to be going to Spin Master. But if DC Films is going to start getting it right, and DC TV has certainly been getting it right for a while, have they not? So you start losing that. And that suddenly becomes a big deal. But again, for Spin Master, this is great for you. And for us, the consumer, I think it's good too because let's face it, if Spin Master starts to build up a little bit, creates that competition, how does that hurt us as the collector, as the consumer? Think about the rise of Kenner during the Star Wars action figure days. That ended up being a big deal. It created a boom and that created more and better action figures. Maybe that's not as much of an arguable point towards the end, but that, I digress. You know, that, that just created the competition is what I'm trying to say. It created the want and the need for more and better product. And I think that in this era, learning from mistakes in the past, that's what something like this can do. So while this might not be a short-term good thing for Mattel, it's a long-term good thing because it's not like Spin Master makes bad products either. If you've seen their products, you can Google stuff that Spin Master's already done. Or if you've been to Comic-Con and you've seen what they can do, this is going to end up being a good thing. Because they make good action figures. And I'm not saying Mattel doesn't, but Mattel hasn't exactly been burning it up as far as their DC action figures are concerned. And focusing more on WWE, I get that. It's probably making them more money anyway. But at the same time... Handing DC off to somebody who's really going to pay attention to it and really going to give them the product that we deserve, I think it's going to be a good thing in the long run. Speaking of what we deserve, that's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, if my voice holds out, we'll talk to David Mazouz from Gotham. In the final season of Gotham, we'll get into that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Robin Lord Taylor from Gotham, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Everyone's looking forward to the fifth and final season of Gotham on Fox. The Legend of the Dark Knight premieres on Thursday, January the 3rd at 8 p.m. Eastern. And we've got the man himself, Bruce Wayne, David Mazouz. David, what's up? I don't know. It's all up. Everything's up. What's up with you? It seems like there's a lot going on, man. It's been an amazing four seasons, and I know fans can't wait for the fifth and final one to start. Is there a sense of pride knowing that you guys told your own story in your own unique way? Yeah, there, there really is. It's funny, I was actually just, just re-watching some episodes from season three and season four with some of my friends this past weekend. And I'm, it's, it, it's funny that you said, like, is there a sense of pride? Because I am just so incredibly proud of the style and the look and the, the technique and the, just the expertise on every level of, of this show. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very, very proud. There's no other word to, to describe it. I'm going to give you another thing to be proud of, David, because only the late Adam West has played Bruce Wayne more times than you have 
on the screen. How does it make? How does that make you feel? And how do you feel like you've grown while playing the character? I feel like I've grown immensely. I mean, Bruce has taught me so many things about what it means to have willpower, what it means to be courageous, uh, what it means to turn vulnerability into strength. And uh, it, it mean, I mean, I, I'm actually I've, I've never heard that before. That was, you know, Adam West is the only person that's you know played him more than me on screen. It's like. It's crazy. I mean, I feel like this character is really a part of me. I feel like leaving Gotham, I'm leaving a part of myself behind too, because Bruce has become a part of myself. I mean, I've I've been in his body for a good percentage of my life this past these past five years. I can totally understand that. Now, after last season's finale and what we've seen from the trailer so far, I mean, things are kind of insane in Gotham right now. How would you describe the state of the city when we see this first episode of the fifth season? So uh, when we come back to the to the fifth season, we are, I think, 81 days into uh, into no man's land. So the city is kind of, it's in complete disarray. Um, anarchy everywhere. There are gangs ruling different territories in Gotham, and uh, they're all vying for power. Uh, there's a big clash between Gordon and Penguin um, for power and and for for control of the city, and uh, and really as a symbol, who will bring who will bring order back to gotham um will it be the criminal underworld that penguin represents or will it be the good of the police force that gordon represents and for bruce he's kind of settled into his role as uh taking care of selena who as we know got shot at the end of uh, the fourth season and uh she's in the hospital um the doctor's saying she'll never walk again so bruce is going to be taking care of her and he's also going to be uh a real partner to gordon this year helping out with anything that he needs. I mean, as this, you know, a, a lot of the police force, a lot of the GCPD isn't on the island anymore. Everybody is trying to get their hands on any resources they possibly can. So that includes food, water, medicine, bullets. And it's just, uh, it, it really, it feels like, it feels kind of like Lord of the Flies, where everyone is just out for, out trying to get anything they can get their hands on. That's definitely a good analogy. I can tell you that right now. Now, one of my favorite things about Gotham, David, from the beginning was the relationship between Bruce and Alfred. Now, when I talked to Sean Pertwee a couple years ago, he talked about how amazing you were and how quickly you matured into the role of Bruce Wayne, and even Batman, for that matter, he said. So how special is that bond, not just between Alfred and Bruce, but between you and Sean as well? It's immensely special. It's indescribably special to me. I mean, Sean has been like a father to me these past five years. I mean, my, especially being away from my own father. Um, I'm, I'm from L.A. The show shoots in New York, so for the past five years, I've, um, I've been away from my own dad. And uh, Sean's been away from his own son, who's, who's around my age, too. So um, it's been incredible to, to be working with somebody that's so talented and so professional and so dedicated um, to his craft. And, you know, I'm, I'm, constantly, I'm constantly amazed at Sean's, dedication level i mean he and, and, and his passion his passion for for playing alfred thaddeus crane pennyworth as he would say um you know, <laughs> he, he did an incredible amount of research he'd come to work every day and and have layers upon layers upon layers of, of backstory for his character and um and for every choice that alfred makes and um as an actor working with that it's it's impossible to work against and with that for five years and not get immensely better every single time you do. Talking to David Mazouz, of course, plays Bruce Wayne on Gotham. Now, David, knowing that this is the final season, it really feels like 
anything is possible. So with that in mind, without spoiling anything, of course, could we be possibly seeing some characters this season that we haven't seen in a while? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's the final season, so everybody's going to be half making their final showdown, right? So um, Jeremiah is going to be in season five. Um, he he may or may not be inching ever closer to being the Joker. Um, Bruce and Jeremiah are going to have their final showdown uh, towards the towards the end of the season, which is incredible. It is. I mean, their 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 kind of their their final battle, their final clash is not just ridiculously climactic, but also ridiculously satisfying for any comic book fans. And uh, the Scarecrow will be making his appearance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be it's going to be a a madhouse. And especially because we have less episodes than we normally do. We have twelve episodes instead of twenty two. The writers, it, 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 it feels like the writers put 22 episodes worth of story into these 12 episodes. It is completely, completely 150% action-packed. Every second um, serves the purpose of, of moving the story along and getting as many you know, explosions and clashes and battles out there. Um, and uh, that's, that's, that's the best way I think I could characterize Gotham Season 5. Speaking of characters, David, we know that Bane's family will finally be introduced this season at some point. So given the history between Batman and Bane, how great is it to finally tell the early stages of that story on your show? It's amazing. Um, and, you know, in the true spirit of, of Gotham, we, we, we reimagine the story of Bane, um, mm. which, in my opinion, is, is, is really, it's really cool because, um, you know, we've kind of, especially with, and for any fans of the comic books, like, I am, you know, um, with Nightfall, it's, you know, there's, it's so huge. These comics are so massive. Um, and there's so much history with Bane and we saw it again with, um, uh, with the Christian Bale movies, um, Christian Nolan movies. So this Bane is, is a, is a reimagined Bane. It's a, a new origin story. And I'm really excited to tell how, how this new Bane kind of gets, um, uh, intertwined with Bruce and, uh, with Gotham City. I know things are still really fresh for you because, you know, you guys just finished shooting not too long ago, and I'm sure there have been so many amazing moments over the five seasons. Is there really one that stands out for you as a favorite? Yeah, um, uh, there are so many moments. That is that is a hard question. That is tough. Um, I would say the first one that pops into my head, which I think I, I, it definitely is one of my favorite episodes of Gotham, definitely one of my favorite moments for Bruce, uh, is, is where he is with Alfred in the kitchen in season three. And, uh, he makes that vow. I will not kill. I, that, I think that scene was maybe the most defining scene in a single moment for Bruce throughout the entire show. And I think it was defining for not just him, but for his relationship with Alfred and his relationship with Jerome, AKA proto Joker, um, and how he will you know, just, just Bruce's method of taking care of villains in, in Gotham. It was, um, it was really, it was a really special moment when I read it on the script and working, um, you know, again having Sean there along my side while we were doing it was um, incredible as well. Now, quickly, David, before I let you go, does this really feel like goodbye to you? And if it does, what's your, what's your message to all the fans who've supported you in the show over the years? It's very simple. It's just thank you, thank you so much for making my life so phenomenal these past five years and for allowing me and giving me the freedom to step into this beloved role that's been around for 80-plus years and making it my own and being able to reimagine this character and play him more than anybody else except for Adam West. 
The fifth and final season of Gotham premieres. The Legend of the Dark Knight will be happening on Thursday, January the 3rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox. Make sure you're watching that live. It's David Mazouz. Thank you so much for joining me this week, and thank you for what you brought to the character. Thank you. You know, it's very easy to hear the passion that David Mazouz has for the fans of Gotham, for the character of Bruce Wayne and Batman. He is so dialed in, and he's grown so much with this character and with this show from the beginning, it's just incredible. And anytime you ever hear anybody talk about David, and I've talked to a lot of the cast members of Gotham, and you always hear the same thing is how much the way he matured into this role helped evolve the show and the character of Bruce Wayne into what it ended up being and that he was so much of a driving force as to where they're going to end up at the end of this fifth season that, they just not only did the fans not necessarily expect that this was going to happen, but the writers and everyone just didn't seem like they thought that they would get to this point. But because of what David brought to the role, that's how we got here. And I can't wait to see what we're going to have for the final season of Gotham when it premieres on Fox. I've already seen the first couple of episodes. Can't say a word about them. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Let me just put it that way. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to our friends at Fox and David Mazouz for coming on the show this week. You want more info on our show, always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Follow us on social media as well, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.